We are live. Um, welcome, everybody, back to Addicts in Recovery, or AIR. This is Zach, and uh, we've got Mr. Instagram, Mike. Yo, yo, on, what's up? Running our, running our feed, and then we got our Kevin, the new right-hand man, Hi. part of the party. Good to be here. Um, just like we promised last month, we are going to have a speaker, guest speaker on. Um, and so that's what we do. The last week of every month, we have a guest speaker on. So we have our friend Charlie on. Say hi, Charlie. Hey, guys. How y'all doing today? Um, we had to kidnap him, tie him up in the car to get him here because he didn't. We did. But he's we here. Too. He's here. He's the, rough. The, 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 the Hard part about it was that he enjoyed the tying up. Yeah, hey, yeah, that's yeah. that's the scary part. And all the uh, all that came with the tying. Is that yeah. as tight as you can go? <laughs> okay. Give me more. Give me more. Okay. All right. So before we start, uh, <laughs> oh Kevin's God. giving me a weird look across the way right now. Uh, <laughs> I was just seeing the whole thing. Yep, and this is us. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, before we start, God damn it. Uh, before we start, we just got to uh, throw announcements out there. If you have any suggestions as far as sound quality goes, any um, or topics for that matter, uh, hit us up on Instagram. That's the only platform that we have at the moment. Yeah, we'll, we'll we got Insta branch. Mike over here who yeah. is the Insta Beast. I'm trying. So. We're, we're definitely making a couple uh, turns on that and trying to make it a little different and. Uh, inspirational kind of motivational stuff that helps people through day-to-day stuff. I've uh, definitely getting some comments and some good feedback, so it's good. We might maybe start up a Twitter or Facebook eventually. Yeah, moving up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the goal. <laughs> right on. Um, and then also... I think that's, I think that's, that's all I got. It. That's about the only, uh, only announcement that we got tonight, so... Um, Charlie, how you doing today, bro? Doing good, man. How yeah, doing? I'm all right, man. I can't yeah. complain. Yeah, me either. How's uh, how's life? It's pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. good. You ready to get twenty questions? Sure. Okay. Hit me up. <laughs> we we uh we left the tissues over there, okay. so if you need, yeah, them, if you need, them, just tap my shoulder next to you. Can, <laughs> I'll I got, my, I got uh, my shirt. All right, so we we chose Charlie because one of the um, not only is he a really good friend in all of our lives. Um, He's, he's just genuinely, a genuinely good guy, and he has a really good story to tell. Um, so we'll, we'll start out with uh, Charlie. Kind of, where are you from, man? Sounds New Yorky. <laughs> <laughs> New Yorky. So I am American by birth, and I'm Southern by the grace of God. <laughs> from uh, Jackson, Mississippi, born and raised. And I now currently live out in Ogden, Utah, if y'all don't know where that is. It is uh, a little bit north of Salt Lake City, the big city, and um, <laughs> the big city of Utah. Grew up in the South, and when I was seventeen, I decided I uh, I needed to evade the law, and so I ended up living all over the country. But uh, originally from the oh, South, damn. yeah, nice. So uh, Charlie has how much? How much clean time do you have? Coming up on ten years. Ten wow. years. <laughs> October 20th. Congratulations. That's going to be weird to say. A decade? I know. X. <laughs> X going to give it to you. Yeah, there you go. So uh, tell us a bit about it. Like what, tell us a bit about your your past. So um, kind of the, the history. Like how did you get into substance abuse? How did um, kind of that, that play? Uh, well, I, um, 
My older brother was a raging drug addict at an early age. My, uh, I like to say that if you're from Jackson, Mississippi, and you're an Osborne, then you're either in active addiction, you're in recovery, or you're dead from addiction. And so um, I just kind of came by it naturally. Like my whole family is, uh, you know, my house kind of turned into a like a first step halfway house when I was, I guess, about. Mm, 12, 11 and 12 when my dad got sober and um, my my brother was already well I got so uh, so my family's super close and my my dad's brother and my dad hang out all the time still they live like four blocks from each other nah, a little bit further they live about a mile from each other and uh, they always come over see each other hang out well his youngest son uh, was named, his name is Michael and that, and I was raised with Michael for a long time when my, my dad was out drinking and Michael was kicked out of schools and didn't have anywhere to go. So my grandparents kind of raised both of us together. Uh, and we, we spent a lot of time together and we grew up really, really close. And so when we were in high school together, we would, uh, people would just kind of be like, oh, your brother, your brother's over there. Your brother's doing this tonight. Your brother's doing that. And so Sometimes I refer to him as my brother, but he was my first cousin, so we were raised really close. And he uh, he he was a raging drug addict at an early age, and he got kind of got me into it. Um, we started smoking weed when I was really young, probably about thirteen. What's like your age difference between two, two years? Two years. Okay. Yeah. So we have um, all Max kids. With Mac is my uncle. Um, all Max kids are all two years apart, so we're all it start. He had four kids, so we had you know two year gap between everybody all the Osbournes down the line in, in Mississippi. And, you know, we just we had a real tight family. The whole, like, blood's thicker than water thing, that was that was our family. If you, if you mess with one Osborne, you basically mess with all of us. Um, so super close family, uh, a lot of love there, and we had a lot of fun early on. Michael really knew how to party, knew how to, you know, get in bars. I was probably getting in bars when I was 13, 14 years old, drinking and sitting at bars drinking when I was 13, 14 with him and my other cousins. And so uh, that's basically how it started, smoking weed. So, so it's a... Oh, no, go, go ahead. One, bro. two, three, four. No. <laughs> um, your dad, though, let's talk about that just for yeah. a quick sec. Yeah, I do. Um, growing up, what did... Just define, like, or kind of talk about your dad. You know, what did you notice with him at all? Anything? <laughs> Well, my dad, like a uh, classic memory, I'm over at my grandmother's house and they're like, well, you can't go to your dad's house for a little while. I'm like, why? They're like, oh, he's being raided by the police. Right now. <laughs> 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 oh, okay. Um, we, I mean, yeah. did that feel normal though? Or, I mean, yeah. So, you know, my, my dad, my dad tells me the first time you ever got drunk was when you were five and we got locked out of the house and I had case of beer mom was a nurse at night couldn't get back in the house and and so um we just sat in the front yard in lawn chairs drinking beer all night i guess you drunk as shit and so like yeah i guess early on my dad always drove around in an old truck with a um with a 40 ounce budweiser in his lap you know and that was the norm Mm -hmm. and you know now that you say that it, it felt uh it's so interesting that for the for most of my life, even even when when things got really into drugs, I always drove around with a beer in my lap. 
always, you know? And people would be like, you know, that's not really normal to do that, right? You know, that's kind of illegal. I'm like, <laughs> like <"Eagle>, illegal. <laughs> having a Coke, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, he definitely normalized it. So it's, uh, you're saying it's her- it was a hereditary thing almost. I mean, everybody in the family had, yeah. um, I guess, for what you believe it, disease of addiction. Oh, yeah. It's kind of just ran ramp- rampant almost. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's um, really interesting because a lot, of people, a lot of people think there's this huge debate on choice, right? Is addiction a disease or is it a choice? And yeah. or where it comes from? Um, am I choosing to destroy my life? Is this person choosing to destroy, my, destroy their life? If they are, why don't they just stop? Right? But yeah. it, I think it goes deeper than that. Absolutely, it goes way deep. I mean, DNA level deeper than that. Yeah. Um, and additionally, added on to that, the the level of shame that goes from the parent to the child. Um, travels on and then it almost turns into this family shame of the parent is behaving this way and those shame I guess shame whatever cycle. behaviors yeah the cycle pushes through and and it just continues yeah. right and so you're kind of a product I guess a product of your environment almost absolutely um so what how long did it go like how long how long were you running and gunning for so I I you know I see this, this is where it kind of gets um, probably might might get a little different. I, I, I want to preface something before I start saying all this. I, I, I firmly believe that we in recovery all share the same the same uh, story in that we all reach an emotional level where we want change. This isn't working anymore and we want change. We need to do something differently. And, and so whenever I have this, I have a guy that was the best man in my wedding, um, super cool guy, his name is Jake. And he, uh, we, got, we got clean at about the same time. We were about a month um, apart difference. And he, he would listen to me tell my story. He was like, oh, my God, dude, I mean, I, you, you did so much more shit than I did. And you just got crazier than I did. And I said, yeah, but it's not about that. It's about the fact that we were... We both reached a, a place in our lives where we said enough is enough. I can't do this emotionally anymore, and um, I, I need to do something. But I need to I need to change. And so I, I really want to preface from when I, as I move forward in my story, I want to I want to tell everybody like we all share that in recovery. Um, we are all the same in that. Uh, with that being said, so I was always really good with money. That was kind of, that was something that I just, I don't know where I got it from, but I was always just really good with money. And so because of that, I got in in with all these dope boys at an early age, like really big dope boys. And I would, um, they were giving me a lot of drugs to sell and, and I would always make sure that I had their money. I Put would, your hands at the table. Oh, I would always, um, I would always make sure that I had their money, which was the most important thing whenever you're getting things on consignment, and and so because of that, it just progressed very quickly for me. Uh, it progressed to the point where I remember, um, I remember at one point we uh, was living. I was living in this trap house with these uh, with a couple of friends. And we, uh, this girl was living with us and we told her, you know, you can't, we're going to, we're going to quit. We were doing so much Coke at the time. And I said, um, we're going to have to quit doing Coke. And, and we, uh, 
And so we, I basically kind of cut her off. And she um, she tried to kill herself in the bathtub. And and when we found her, we I was calling the ambulance and I was like running around the house and I was putting everything in this in garbage big black garbage bags. And I was handing there were other people there that were getting high, and so I was like giving it to them. And I was like, go put this in your trunk and and drive because the police were about to be here. And I'm like running around the house trying to get everything. And and it dawned on me at that time that I had um, I had a bell which is 50 pounds of weed um, in my closet. I had uh, a little over a quarter of a key of cocaine and just all these pills because I was dealing with the Mexican mafia and uh, a bunch of LSD and just a whole variety of like everything you could ever imagine. And um, and I'm like, and I'm just like giving it to people to just like just run with, just please get this away from me. And so um, it went from... Uh, it went from just really wanting to just smoke weed and listen to the Grateful Dead uh, to this, to this thing that I was, I, it was just like uncontrollable. Chaos. It was uncontrollable, yeah. Uh, to where I was, um, at that point in time, I was uh, personally doing about a quarter ounce of Coke a day. And that's just the Coke. So there was all the other drugs that came with it, you know. And that was that was like when I kind of woke up. And that was when I was about seventeen. So that was like starting about thirteen. You said great about thirteen to seventeen, weed, and then seventeen, you're like, this is this running is nuts. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When you were um, when you were running and gunning, uh, what were kind of the? I guess what was your what was your crutch? What was the main? the main thing that you had the hardest time with? Like, was it cocaine? Was it heroin? Was it, what was, what was it? And what, what did it take before you finally caved and said, I need help? Yeah. So, uh, at that point it was cocaine. Cocaine's a hell of a drug. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah. So I, um, I, I, cause that, that, cause that, cause that's what I had access to, you know, at the time that's what I had. And I had access to, to just so much of it. And um, and so because of that, because of the access, because of the sheer access to it, that that was what I uh, that was what I, I you know I did. Well, at um, at, at this point, at, at seventeen, um, my 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 papa he was working with the um, he was working with the with the police department for a long time, for for many 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 years for like over a decade. He was a, a juvenile court lawyer. And so he would work with kids who had been charged with, with crimes, and he he was a defense attorney, so he'd work with them and get them out. And so he knew all the cops in Jackson, and um, and he uh, came to me and he said, "Listen, you know, the cops are watching the house you're living in. This is a house with a chick overdosed in, or tried to kill herself in." And um, and he was like, "The uh, the, the cops are going to raid you. They gave me a fair warning because they respect me. And they said if you don't quit doing what you're doing, uh, pretty soon." It's they're they're about to kick the doors in, so stop. And I got kind of freaked out because I don't want to go to prison. And I said, well, I'm gonna um, in the cloak of darkness, I'm gonna get on a bus and I'm gonna drive to Montana or ride to Montana, and I'm gonna go live in Yellowstone in uh, the this system where they have they still have it to this day too. They where you can live in these dorms and work in these little restaurants and you don't make shit, but you, uh, they pay your rent and then you can go hiking all day and all this stuff. And so it, like, how old were you at this point? 17. Well, uh, j- yeah, I just turned 17. Oh, okay. Yeah. So when I also graduated high school early um, because of 
just the way I had it set up. Uh, so so was, you were an intelligent kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah I had my So um, yeah, so I, I just turned seventeen. Change, yeah. And so I, uh, I, I was a little after, maybe seventeen in a month. Anyway, so I head out to Montana and um, to Yellowstone. So the geographical cure. Right? That's it, right? <laughs> you, you know this one. And and I was like, this is going to fix me because you can't get cocaine in uh, Montana in the middle of the Yellowstone. And I, I, I was like, yeah, this is going to work. And I, um, I did just become an alcoholic for a while. I ended up getting some troubles with the with the uh, federal um, agents in Yellowstone. And they kicked me out of Yellowstone, um, and they took me to the edge of the park, and they dropped me off in the middle of the night with like seven dollars in my pocket. And they <laughs> said, "They said you need to not come back in here, or we're going to arrest you." And I said, "Ah, it sucks." And um, my parents said, "Well, we're not going to give you any money because we know what's been going on, and you know all the cocaine and everything, and so we're we're not going to enable you anymore." So there is also something that you that you said that I want to emphasize as well. Um, you said. I couldn't get cocaine there, right? I knew, I knew I couldn't get cocaine there, so I just became an alcoholic. Raging instead. alcoholic. Yeah, so so literally it just, the the addiction just manifested itself in something different, Absolutely. even after you moved to a new place. Absolutely. Okay. But it's, it, the, it's the brain power, too, the, the, the rational thinking of, like, I'm not going to do this, but I'm still going to go ahead and do this, too, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it always did. It, it always did that, and and that's kind of where I'm like, because then I, I hitchhiked and I ended up in Steve Springs for a couple of years, and it's just like when you talk about raging alcoholism, I mean, it just took it to the next level, and it was always that. I was always what I try to say is I was always trying to fill some void that I I had been just trying to fill my whole life, you know. And when I was 13, drugs did it. We did it. You know, and I was like, oh, my God, I finally found it. This fills the void. This does it. Weed and alcohol. Do it till I'm, like, seeing stars and dizzy, and, and the void is filled. I, I have this guy that I, I was working with, and he says, he says, you know, I'm, 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 I don't really fit this mold that a lot of people here fit. I don't have a lot of trauma. I don't, I don't really – I was loved as a child, you know, and I, I, this is um, – I don't know I, – I use because I like to get high, yeah, I said, you know what, man, I, I'm the same way, dude. I share that story. My, my, my dad loves me. My, my mom loves me. My mom loves me too much. She tried to love me to death. She enabled me almost to, to, point to the brink of death. And, um, and so uh, I used because I love to get high. You know, it filled that void that was there. Uh, and, and, it, and so until I was able to really accurately... Um, figure out some coping skills that would fill that void in a healthy way. I just continued to shift addictions. You know, it was started Coke, then I went to alcohol, then I moved back to Mississippi, turned to Coke again. And then I moved to uh, uh, Colorado and it turned into black tar heroin. And then I moved to North Carolina and it turned to heroin and crack. And then I moved to, um, you know, uh, back to wherever I ended up after that. I don't remember. But it was, <laughs> and then it just, it, when it turned into, uh, after it was heroin, it just, that was it. That was it. So I got a question for you. So when you're kind of hitchhiking, going around from, you know, leaving Mississippi, you, you head up to Yellowstone, go down to Colorado. Um, describe her and, like, maybe talk about some of the people you kind of ran into, how you kind of the groups of friends or the using buddies or, I mean, how, describe some of that. Yeah, that was 
That's a good time, too. So I, I, I really like this band. It's called Widespread Panic. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with the band or not, but they've been around for a long time. Well, this is back in, this is back in their heyday, too. So this was back in like 1999-ish, 98-ish. And, um, and so I, I, being from the South, it's a, it's a Southern rock band, Southern rock jam band. And I used to go to these shows, and you could, you know, you do all kind of fun stuff at these shows. And so I'm out west, and there's a um, there's just a bunch of just kids out there, and they're all just kind of homeless and transient, and they smoke weed all day and drink all night, and uh, living in Colorado and ski bombs. And I fell in love with that lifestyle, and then they they were like, well, we're gonna go do widespread panic tour for uh, eight months, and I'd be like, all right, cool, well. Moving out of my house, quitting my job, loading the dog up in the car, and we're going on a tour. And so I'd do that, and I'd come back, and I'd work for a little while. So and another good thing about my job is I, um, I've ran kitchens, right? And, and so, man, you can get it. I, I used to tell people whenever, whenever I was training, like, new, new guys or, or girls that would come in, and they'd be like, oh, how do I do, you know, how do I do this or how do I do that? I'd say, uh, I'd say listen, I... Uh, I'm going to train you how to cook. I'm going to train you how to cook. And what I want you to understand is that this is a skill that you can travel anywhere you want to in the country. And if you're good enough, you can walk into a kitchen and you can say, hey, listen, I know what I'm doing. Uh, hire me and they'll put you to work that day. You just listen to what I'm saying and you can make that happen. And that's what I did. You know, um, I wasn't wasn't like like traveling and end up somewhere and I'd be jobless or anything. I'd, I'd have a job. I'd have two jobs in the first day I was there. I'm working in kitchens, and so um, so I kind of had the luxury of of being able to just be like I, I quit, you know, screw it, I quit. I'm leaving my house. I'm going on a panic tour for a year, eight months, or something like that. And um, and the thing was, I, I was just going right back in the same uh, same mold where I'd go on panic tour and I'd get the the big seek out the biggest dope dealers and I'd get them to front me a lot of dope and I'm walking around the lots and. I'm, selling ecstasy and LSD and weed and everything, making enough money to uh, put gas in the car, get a hotel room, get a ticket for the next show, and uh, spin, wash, repeat, go to the next show. And so I, I met a whole lot of cool people that way. I had a lot of really great nicknames, you know, in different states, and I just would end up um, meeting, like, different cliques and, and get, getting to be really good friends with them for a little while and, and, then, uh, and then moving on to a new clique of people and... Still to this day, like I look back on it, and, and I'm like, you know, I um, <clears throat> people people say, you know, what's your what's your greatest strength, and I and, and I tell them all the time, I say, you know, I had the the ability to talk to a homeless person or talk to the president of the United States in the same day, and I will be able to um, show them an equal amount of respect. Uh, probably um, that I used to say that. Currently, I would probably show the president a little less respect than <laughs> but nonetheless it, anybody i can go from uh i can go from from somebody who people have uh you know you know i can talk to anybody man and and i have uh i i, I see the beauty in every human being that walks this earth um i i was raised my grandfather was one of the greatest people i've ever met he's my mentor in life and he would um he would always say love everybody love everybody that was you know, that's what he said to me every day um and so I, I, I really do. I preach it. I, I, you know, you got to find the good in people because when you start really nitpicking and, and picking out the bad in people, that's all you end up seeing, you know. And so uh, I would I would go and meet all these new cliques of people, and I would just just focus on all of the beauty and all the good that they have to offer. And I would just 
it was just a great time in life. Um, and, and again, now this is when I was just a raging alcoholic. And this was before I picked up the needle. And so, and I, another thing is, I, I tell people all the time, I say, you know, one of the one of the cliches in AA that I, I really don't like, I don't agree with it at all, is that um, uh, my 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 worst day sober is better than my best day when I was getting drunk. I completely yeah. disagree with that. I, I used to have so many good days when I was getting drunk and high, you know, so many. Um, and so I don't agree with that. And, and, and this goes back to like that time period when I'm like making all these friends and it's like, it's a, it was just a fun, it's a fun time in life. Especially if you're living up in like Yellowstone. Cause I, I lived up in Jackson at the oh. climbers ranch, just below the Teton for a little while, while. And, and you get a whole bunch of diverse people from all over the place, exactly. you know, and like people from all over the place, like you're just at night, you're just bullshit around campfires, oh, drinking beers, greatest and life that ever hear, could hear exist. the crickets and you can smell the pine. And it's like, I mean, you yeah. can't ask for much more than that. No, so. You really can't. <laughs> so what happened? I mean, you, you said life was, life was good. Life, life had good times. What was it that that made? What was that point? Because then we're going to get into kind of what you did as far as recovering goes. Because yeah. that's really the most important part. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. We love hearing about how you know much of an alcoholic you are. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we got. We all got stories today. Right. Right. So what? What was it? What was that tip? What yeah. So that? I said I. I you know I would always say I, I need to go to school. I need to go to school, and because um, I can't do this forever, I, I've got to have some type of formal education and like I gotta be something with my life and so uh, I would go back to Mississippi because I have in-state tuition in Mississippi and uh and every time I go back to Mississippi it was like right back in the drug game and um and so I and then I would leave and move out to Colorado again uh and just run from everything and then I'd get out there and then you're back into raging alcoholism because you can't get the cocaine you know and then at some point um I, I knew a guy. I knew a guy when it was a guy when it was a guy, and uh, his name was Jason Johnson, and and uh, he's still alive today, which is amazing. And he said um, we had a lot of misadventures early on, and then he uh, I saw him in an AA meeting when I was um, back in town, and uh, he was like, he's like, yeah, I want you to move in with me, you know, I'm in AA, and lo and behold, he was shooting up dope, and I didn't know it, and so I end up I end up moving in with him because I was just moving back from. Uh, somewhere and he showed me how to shoot up dope and it, that was the tipping point how old are you at that 21, 21. Yeah. yeah so everything changed at that point and um and everything became about that you know and i would try to i would take these brief moments away from it to where um i would be like oh yeah well i'm gonna get in school i'm gonna stop shooting up dope and uh and i would um I would go and I would enroll in school and I'd have like a good month, you know, and then um, and then some I'd have a shitty day, and I would be ill prepared for sobriety on that day, and the opportunity to get high would present itself and I would take full advantage of that opportunity, and then I was uh, uh, off to the races again, you know. And you you hadn't gone to any AA meetings or tried to recover oh, no, no, in I, any way? I, I was raised in AA. I was raised, the, the first AA meetings that I, the first time I, I got sober was when I was 15. Oh, okay. First time I had substantial clean time was when <laughs> I was 15, which was like uh, 
probably four months, five months. And like my dad still goes to a meeting every day. Still to this day goes to a meeting every day. We, we're, where I grew up, my house I grew up in, in the neighborhood I grew up in Jackson is in Fonder. It's this little artsy, um, gentrified uh, section of Jackson. Um, we, it's got this Yana house. Yana stands for You Are Not Alone. The Yana house, the Yana clubhouse, and it's it still is like the cornerstone of of AA in Jackson, you know. And my dad's got his own spot on the couch that he's sitting at drinking a coffee every day, and um, and still to this day does. So I was raised like you know as a kid, it was like um, it was like well, I need to go talk to daddy, and um, I'll just ride my bike up to Yana, and um, I'm you know a kid doing that. And so I, I was always around AA, and then, of course, I, I had to get sober, and so I, I started going to AA, and, and, I, and, you know, I always knew there's an easier, softer way. I always knew it. I always knew it. It was just this idea that, um, it was just this idea that I'm not ready for it, you know? There's still some partying to do. Okay, so then at this point, you're, you're 21. I'm, I'm trying to make this time frame. I'm, yeah. So you're uh, you're 21, and then you decide to go to college. Then, how mm-hmm. describe your first little bit? Well, I'd been kind of in and out of community college because so I didn't when I moved back. I moved back when I was um, when I was like nine, 19. I think I moved back to Mississippi for, for the first time. Went to community college, and then I got in this this dude who like owned a jujitsu studio wanted to kill me, like quite literally kill me. <laughs> And so I was like walking around with like grizzly bear mace in my pocket all the time, <laughs> just waiting for somebody to jump out and just like Steven Seagal me to death, you know. And uh, and ready fight, <laughs> finish him. And so I uh, I I was dating this girl for a long time too at the time, and I was like, look, I'm moving to Crested Butte, Colorado, and I'm getting away from this. This is ridiculous. Walking around thinking somebody's gonna kill me every time I turn around. <laughs> I had to quit my job because they were like, ah, it's, a, it's a mess. And so um, I moved out to Crested Butte and I just quit school. And then I, I you know, running from, from addiction again, alcoholism, got tired of that, came back. So I got to finish school, moved back, um, finished community college. And then, of course, the natural transition, I'm like, all right, I'm done with community college. I got to go to a four-year institute. Where are you going to go? I'm going to go to University of Colorado. Hell yeah, because that's my running spot, you know. So then I moved to Boulder. And, um, and so that's when I went to a four-year institute. And that's when I had already been shooting up dope at that point. And so they have really good uh, black tar heroin in Denver. And it was just a, it was a mess. It was a, it was a horrible decision. And so that didn't last long. And but but I, you had bouts, you had bouts of, of like little mini sobriety Lengths of time, yeah. Where you, what white, knuck- white knuckled it, maybe month two, and I was going to meetings when I do it, and and here again, never got a sponsor, never worked steps, I was never of service to others. Um, I, uh, I just I wasn't doing the things that uh, I wasn't doing the things that that I do today. You were uh, you were kind of working your own program. Absolutely. Okay. My own program did not work. Okay. That My makes own sense. program set me up for failure every every time I turned around. Yeah. So I, with some of the some of the people you're kind of hanging out with this time frame too. Did you ever see uh, um, loss losses at all? Oh, and friends. Yeah. Oh God, I mean, people were dropping like flies. Uh, car wrecks, overdoses. Um, so it was more of a common thing. Like, oh, did you hear so and so? Dude, I'm so numb yeah. to it at this point in my life. Yeah, it's. 
It's sad. It's really sad. It's a shame that you have almost, you have to become numb to it. Um, Especially self-preservation, right? You see so much, and, and a lot of people do, especially if they're in the rings, the throes of addiction, and they're surrounded by people in addiction as well. You you see death. I mean, before I was twenty, before I was twenty, I think I I know four people who died um, that had to do with addiction, whether it was a a car accident or whether it was a suicide or whether it was an overdose. Um, you you almost have to. It's self preservation. Yeah. Um, so what what did you do? Like what? I mean, you said that you would go to meetings on and off. You, you're trying to get back into school. What was it that actually? helped you get to a point of success. Hmm. So I died. I died one day. Can you sit that? Intermission. So I was working at this place, and I don't know how familiar you guys are with an uh, with the concept of an open kitchen, but it's basically like you got a you got a big kitchen right there in the middle of a restaurant. People are all sitting around eating and watching you cook. And so I was working in one of these and, uh, and I died, and they had to bring this ambulance in, and, and it was a Friday night rush, so the place was full. And How'd you they, die? Uh, I overdosed on uh, meth and Dilaudid. Okay. A lot of meth, a lot of Dilaudid, too much. More than I, my eyes were bigger than my stomach. And so um, I, uh, they, they wheeled me out. Um, I just seized up, and then I don't remember anything after that, but I remember waking up in the hospital, and they were bringing me back. My mom was there, and... And so, so, so at this point, and I got, I got to tell you guys, um, I, I got to say this. You know, uh, there's this whole concept of that um, tough love can really can go, it can it can go south pretty quick. And but, so I have a friend. Um, I have a friend. I have a, I had a really I had a best friend. I had a best friend that I was uh, grew up with. We we were really really close. And, um, and he, uh, he couldn't get right. And so his, he was living with his aunt in this country town in Mississippi. And, um, and his aunt, and he was getting high again, and he kept trying to you know, get clean, and he couldn't. So his aunt was like the last person in the family to, to take care of him and, and put him up. And he was, and this was last Christmas, and so he was, uh, he was getting high again, and so she, she told him to not come back, to leave and not come back. So he goes to treatment for a little while, and I'm in the process of trying to get him into this um, this facility in this place called Eden in Utah. And uh, Valley Camp is the name of the facility. It's a great facility. And so I was, I was in the process of doing it, but they, they couldn't have any open beds. And so he was uh, he was uh, homeless. He, he was getting out of treatment, and he didn't have anywhere to go. And he, he called his aunt, and he said, hey, I just have a few days um, before Charlie can get me into Valley Camp. Can I please come stay with you? And his aunt said, you know, I've learned a thing or two about boundaries, and I'm going to have to say no because you've crossed every boundary I've had multiple times, and I can't do this anymore. You cannot come here. You're not welcome anymore. And so he was, um, uh, he didn't have anywhere to go, and he was walking, he was high, and he was walking around the highway at 530 in the morning, and a car hit him and killed him. And, uh, And so his aunt um, you know, I was talking to her, and his aunt says, "You know, I I should have should have let him come stay with me, you know." And I, I just got to really say, like, you you can have these moments where um, where you can you can 
hold up, you, you can develop a boundary and say, this is where my boundary is. And, and, and you can really do that. And it can, it can really not work, you know? And we have to be prepared for that when we establish boundaries. We have to be prepared for the worst case scenario. Because what she did is absolutely right. She did not make the decision to um, put drugs in his body and have him walking around the uh, highways at 5.30 in the morning. She did not make that decision. He made that decision. And, um, and it's not fair for her to carry that around with her, but she does. Now, so, that, so that's worst case scenario. So, and I want to say that on the other end, you have the you know, best case scenario of what can happen. Now, my, at this point in my life, I was, um, I was homeless. I was working seven days a week, and I was like, uh, I didn't have anywhere to go. I'd go meet the, the dope boy during the day, and I'd get high, and then I'd go to my dad's house, and I would sit on a couch and just be high until I went to work, and then I'd go to work, and then I would leave, and I'd go squat in abandoned houses and then wake up the mor- next morning and do the same thing over again. And um, my dad, when I, when I died, uh, when I overdosed, I'd call my dad from the hospital. My dad's always been my best friend and my dad and my mom um when i called him from the hospital i said daddy i died you know i'm I'm in the hospital this is what happened and uh and those those people at the restaurant had the nerve to fire me do you believe that shit i'm the victim (laughs) (laughs) and uh and he just was like you're such an idiot so he he told me never to uh call he told me not to call him anymore he said this is it tough love you're not welcome at this house anymore. I'm enabling you. Um, you can't. You can't come back. And I was just furious. I was so angry. Uh, and and then my mom said, my mom said, well, um, uh, you know, what if I could get you into treatment? And that was pretty much an empty threat because we were, you know, I grew up po. I couldn't even afford the O and the R. When I was growing <laughs> up. And uh, <laughs> such a terrible joke. <laughs> Zach's favorite joke. <laughs> and so, um, I, you know, when my mom said that, she's like, "You want to go to treatment?" I was like, "This is an empty. This is an empty." You're like, threat. "Sure, mom. Let's go ahead and yeah." I was sign like, me "Yeah, let's, let's go, go today, this. right? <laughs> Break out that checking account that you have that I don't know about." Um, and so, Some inheritance money. yeah. Uh, but I, I got to tell you guys, man. Like, I, I believe that. Um, I believe in this this thing that's greater than me. I do. I believe in this thing that's greater than me that 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 gives us a way and a path and and um, what you're going to call it the universe. You call it God. You can call it Allah. You can call it Buddha. Um, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and at this point in time, my higher power was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. And when my mom said that and I agreed to it blindly, she said, "Okay, well, let's go." I got an intake for you tomorrow. And I'm like, what the fuck <laughs> are you talking about? Like, jokes and, on me. Uh, right? Your bluff was called. <laughs> and she had figured out some way for me to get um, what I later found out, because I ended up later on in life, I ended up doing the same thing for countless other people. Um, uh, treatment centers are, are like, I want to say required, but I, I like to think that they do it because they want to. They have these things called indigent beds, which at the end of every month, towards the end of every month, they'll have these empty beds. These are mostly state-run facilities. Well, before all the state-run beds got cut, which is showing how long I've been clean. But um, but what, what it is is uh, they'll have all these indigent beds. So if there's an empty bed towards the end of the month um, and they can't and they haven't filled it yet, then they'll say, okay, well, this person uh, is indigent, which means homeless. 
and they can't afford it and and you'll prove that you're homeless and, and can't afford it and then they'll let you just come in and stay there and my mom had worked this whole deal out and but she'd only worked it out for 30 days and it was a 90-day program and so when I went in I was I was really um, I was I couldn't I was really withdrawn pretty bad and so I, I just I, I just went in there because I was just tired of being homeless I was tired of being homeless and it was just too it was a lot of work it was a lot of work waking up every morning at 5 a.m and scrounging up stealing manipulating lying cheating doing everything I could to get enough money to to uh, get off empty and also then also follow that up with trying to trying to get high for the day and and so I I just wanted a I just wanted a little bit of relief and uh, so I said, okay, I'll give it 30 days. And in my mind, when I did it, I was thinking, um, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get some of these drugs out of my system, so I reduce my tolerance level, and that way it'll be a lot cheaper to get high whenever I get out in 30 days. And that was my sole motivation for going for 30 days. And so I was in there, and I was like, you know, uh, I, I can't see my eyes. I weren't, I wasn't sleeping, and. Um, I wasn't really able to focus on everything. And so all these people came to me and they said, hey, Charlie, um, uh, the, the people who ran it, the clinical director and the, my therapist came to me and they said, hey, Charlie, listen, um, what if we keep you here for another 60 days? And I was like, I knew y'all were trying to get some money out of me. I was like, I don't have any money, dude. You're wrong guy. And they were like, no, 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 no. We'll, we'll do it for free. We'll do it for free. And, and here again, this is one of those um, God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself instances. And so I said... I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And really, still, again, the motivation was like I just didn't have anywhere to go. I had absolutely nothing. I had a black garbage bag with clothes in it, and that was all I had to my name at the time. And so um, so I stayed another 60 days, and, and, well, and I stayed, stayed some more days after that, too. Were, were you feeling better after the initial 30 days, though? Yeah. I mean, did you feel a little clearer? Did you see any kind of... Yeah, and so that's like I, think, I like this a little bit, yeah, that kind of thing. And so that's I think that's why they asked me to stay because I was just like starting to um, like hear what they were saying. You know what I mean? I do. I was just starting to hear it at about like week three, and they're like, "Ah, oh, we're gonna send this guy out in a week, and he's gonna have a needle in his arm by the end of the day." Easy. You know, and he's just starting to like wake up. Um, let's give him a little bit more time, and 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 so yeah, man, and and. I, look, this, there's this dude named Nicholas Toos, and he was my uh, therapist. He was an LCSW, which stands for Licensed Clinical Social Worker. He was my therapist at um, the place that I went to treatment, and I, I really credit him for saving my life. I really do. Like, uh, there was there had never been a point in my life where I was just like. Um, yeah, I'm gonna uh, open up and I'm gonna look at some of this deeper shit that I've been repressing that I continue to get high over on a subconscious level, but I don't even realize that I'm using that as as um, as uh, material to get high over. I don't even think about it because I've suppressed it so deep, you know. And and he he was like he was really digging into that stuff and he was bringing it out. And it was a lot of pain, man. Like so. I really I struggled early on. I struggled I struggled a lot early on with um so when I was uh I I was always a happy happy drunk. I was always a happy high guy, you know. It was just the life of the party. That was Charlie, you know. And um and so because of that, uh, these women would hang out with me and they would be like um I want to do what you do. I want to I'll do what I want to go have some fun. I, I want to go be, out, yeah. yeah. And I I'll do what you do, 
if it allows me to hang out with you. Right? Right. And I didn't realize that it was happening so much, but all of these little girls were just following me around, and they were just getting strung out and dead and just, just ruining lives. You know, I was, was a tornado just running through people's lives, and and now and and it was this and and it, when you when you say did you have these moments of getting clean right and I, I did I would have these moments of clarity where I was like going to meetings and when I would have these moments of clarity where I wasn't just completely out of it twenty hours a day I would um, I'd remember all the people and all the wreckage and I'd see it and it was just so unbearable for me. Because I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And this all fact, the guilt and shame. All and, of it mm-hmm. was just, just, bam. And, and then all those little moments of being clean would just always just end up. And I'd be like, I don't want to fucking think about this shit anymore. Give me a needle. Give me a beer. Give me a line. Give me something. So anyway, so I, um, so this dude, Nick, he, was, he would talk to me and he'd say, uh, he'd say, let's look at that. You know, let's really look at that. Let's look at let's look at what your role in that was, and, and like realistically, let's let's break that shit down. And so we did. And he was like, "Look, man, how do we find how do how do you forgive yourself for that, right? How do we find a level of forgiveness for yourself? How do you do that?" And um and and look, man, he it's so funny because I still I'm still in touch with this guy, and um he probably doesn't even remember any of that shit, but I, I do. I remember so vividly, like. Uh, like how that made such a great impact on my life. And once I was able to forgive myself, then I got to a point where I thought, um, I want to be somebody. I want something, whatever it is. I want to, like, I want to have something. Um, part of me has always wanted kids, right? And, um, and so it, it, at this point, I was uh, 30, I was 29 years old. 29 years old. And I'd always wanted kids. This idea of me um, being a father was just something I've always dreamed about. And because uh, I was such a great, with my dad, the relationship I had with my dad was always so great. And I, I wanted to that. I wanted that. I wanted to pass that on. And so um, I would, uh, I'm 29 and I just wanted that. And I said, you know, if you want to have kids, this is the thing about, and this is what I always said. I said, if you're going to have kids, what, what Zach was talking about early on with you know, this whole cycle of shame that you get from your parents through addiction. Like, I knew it. I saw it. I was like, I don't want to pass that on to my kids. I don't, if I have kids, I don't ever want, to, want them to see me getting high, you mm. know? And, and uh, something else, too, I used to smoke cigarettes. I smoked cigarettes, I smoked cigarettes from 13 to, um, like, I don't know, 30-something. And, so, uh, and so I said, you know what? I don't even want them to see me smoking cigarettes, dude. Like... I don't want them to see any of that because it's modeling. You know, you model that behavior on your kids and you just pass it down to them. And you, you, you download all your fucked up shit on their pristine little hard drives and then you make these little hellions running around doing what you, all the crazy shit you used to do. I don't want that, you know. So I need to, I, I want something. I'm, I'm working with Nick and I'm like, you know, I, can, I forgive myself. Um, I forgive myself. And he said something to me one time and he, it really stuck with me. He said, he said, listen, man, have you asked your higher power for forgiveness? I said, I have. I have asked him for For all that shit, all the lives that I've, I've wrecked. I said, yeah, I have asked him for forgiveness. I have asked her for forgiveness. And, um, and, uh, she, uh, she, and he said, well, do you think your higher power has forgiven you? I said, I think she has forgiven me. And, um, 
And he said, do you think you're greater than your higher power? I said, no, she's definitely greater than me. And he said, well, if she can forgive you, why can't you forgive yourself? And it was just like this logic that I never thought it's like before. So <laughs> yeah. You're just like, like <laughs> fucking Jedi shit, you know? <laughs> Forgiveness, I am. Yeah. And so uh, anyway, so so I did that, and I um, I, I I moved past it. We were I worked with this kid, this kid, this dude, and I, and he was like, he was like, listen, man, here's the deal, here's the deal, here's the deal, Charlie. Let me tell you how to stay sober. You ready? I'll tell you how to stay sober. So tell me how to stay sober, man. He said, you. Be of service to other people. Be of service. That'll that'll help you stay sober. You know? Do what you're doing. You know, get in AA. And I wanted to get back in church too at the time, which I did. And he said, um, he said, he said, you do that. Get, get, you want to get back in church? Get back in church. Get, get with AA again. And he said, but but be of service because when you're when you when you act in service, you get out of self. And when we're in addiction, um, we are primarily in self. Right, we are selfish in, in our actions, and and so he was like, you know, get, to get out of self, be of service. And so I said, I said, you know what, you're you're you do a lot of service work, just working with all these addicts, like you do service. He was like, yeah, I mean, I guess. I said, all right, I'm gonna do what you do, and he was like, <laughs> he was like okay, and I was like, oh, where do I apply? He was like, uh, you need a degree, and I said, all right, well, okay, I'll go get one of those, and so. And really, that's kind of what sparked it. It was it was it, to to do what I do. Um, to do what I do didn't start out as this uh, this altruistic act of like I'm going to go help people and decrease addiction in the world and and all that. It started as this this very um, selfish thing of like I just want to stay sober, and so this will be kind of a loophole where I can be of service and I can maybe make a little bit of money. And what do you do? I'm a I'm a therapist. I'm a social worker. I mean, uh, so he you literally did exactly what he did. Right, right. And so he said, "This is where it gets even funnier." And this is where, like, when we really like step back and we look at like how beautiful the universe is and how amazing this thing we call higher power is. Like, he said, um, he said, he said, I said, "Where did you go to school?" And he said, "I went to the University of Southern Mississippi and I, to get both of my degrees, my undergrad and my graduate degree." And I said, okay, 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 cool. And um, and then like a week later, he was like, where are you going to live when you leave here? And I said, I don't fucking know. I'm homeless, dude. And he was like, well, voc rehab, um, since you're homeless, we hook you up with voc rehab, and it's, it'll, they'll put you in this, um, this halfway house that's in Hattiesburg, which is where the University of Southern Mississippi is. And I was like, oh, my God. Wow. I was like, I'll, I'll do it. And then I'll go to the school, the same school, and I'll get the same degrees, and I'll be applying for a job here, you know? And um, so I, man, I went back. I, I did that, and uh, I went to that that halfway house, that um, place that he was sending me, and Voc Rehab paid for the first two months, and I ended up moving in with a bunch of drug addicts into a house and stayed, managed to, you know, really work a good program. I got a phenomenal sponsor as soon as I got out of treatment like the day I got out of treatment I walked up to this this old older black dude and uh, he had 33 years clean his name's Henry DeVone he's passed away at the, he died he died clean um, from cancer was that like in a meeting or something yeah yeah so I was in an, an NA meeting and um, okay 
saw this guy. He had something I wanted. He had a whole lot of something I wanted, you know. And when he was share, he was just like you could just like peace and serenity was just like oozing out of him, you know. And um, and I walked up to him and I was like, hey man, listen, I just got a question. And I said, uh, I said, what did you do? Like, what would what did you do when you got high? And uh, and he was like, he's like, yeah, I used to ship heroin from New York, from the city. Just shit up heroin. I said, "All right, I think you're my man." <laughs> and he was like, uh, "All right." I said, "I want you to sponsor me." I said, "Did you did you do crack too?" Because at the end, I was like doing a bunch of crack and heroin. And see, I said, "Did you do crack too?" And he said, "No, I'm, I'm BC." I was like, "BC?" He's like, uh, "Before crack." <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well. So I got a question for you. To kind of back up just a tiny bit. Yeah. <clears throat> um, describe now your kind of the whole going through treatment to kind of college uh your family at this point like what's your relationship are they like pumped that you're you went to rehab and are you talking to them while you're in rehab like how does yeah yeah so so my dad um my dad said uh my uh i'd been sober for about three months i was still in treatment so in order to get into that house i had to wait another like 20 days so i was in they kept me 90 days and then another 20 days to get in the so i was there a while and when I was sober for three months in that treatment facility, I called him and I said, hey, Dad, I just want to tell you I got three months today. And he said, what the fuck you want me to do, throw you a ticker tape parade? And my immediate, <laughs> <laughs> and my immediate response, just gut response was, what the fuck is a ticker tape parade? <laughs> 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 uh, anyway, so... Um, so he said, so, so, so man, like, like uh, something else too. my, my stepmom, which is a huge part of this story that I've kind of left out at this point. My stepmom is also, um, she's like 20 something years sober, you know, they met in the rooms and, uh, she's just an amazing human being. And she was always like, you gotta stop enabling him. You gotta stop enabling him. You know? And I was always like, well, that's that bitch talking. That's her talking, daddy. You don't need to listen to her, you know? And I, I had a whole bunch of resentments built up towards Tammy just a whole bunch. And so, um, and so I, uh, I've been clean for about seven months and I was living in Hattiesburg, which is an hour and a half away from Jackson. And my dad called me and he said, Hey, um, why don't you come up and stay with us in, in, uh, Jackson this weekend? It's been a long time since I've seen you. You're doing good. Would you come stay with us? And I was like, yeah, hell yeah. Okay, cool. So I drove up to Jackson, and uh, I hitched a ride with, with somebody going up to Jackson, and, and uh, they dropped me off at my dad's house. And I walk in, and, and they're just like, oh, hey, you know, Tammy's there, and she's being all nice and shit. And, um, and my dad's being nice, and I spent the weekend with them, and they're, like, taking me out to dinner, and, uh, like, we're watching football. And it's just, like, good old time, you know? <laughs> and, um, and Tammy's being super nice and cool. And, and, and then so the weekend ends and I got to, you know, go back and, um, and, uh, Tammy was like, do you need any money? I was like, something, there's something, something's wrong here. They hadn't given me money in a decade. And I'm, I'm telling you, they hadn't given me a dollar bill in a decade. It was this whole, we're not, we, we don't support what you're doing. Therefore we will never give you money while you're getting fucked up. So she was like, you want any money? And it was just such an awkward thing, I remember. And I was like, God, could you use some money? And she's like, here's, here's 20 bucks. I was like, all right, cool. And so I left, I left there and I said, um, I called my sponsor up. I said, dude, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this. Their entire perspective of me has changed completely. 
And he said, no, man. He said, your perspective of them has changed. And I drove back that whole hour and a half and, um, and, those, and like the, the power of that statement was just so incredibly true. Uh, like they, they never stopped loving me. They never stopped. They were always there. They were always wanting me to be this person that I am today and they were support. It was my perception of them had shifted because I was always like, they're, they're evil, they're right. the ones against me, you know? Now I saw it for what it was, you know what I mean? The haze had been cleared from my eyes. And um, it's just ever since then, it's been just complete magic, you know? Like, my, to have the greatest relationship with my stepmom and my dad, um, you could ever imagine. My mom has uh, always been just kind of the same shining example of enabling moms <laughs> but uh she's so that mold's hard to break yeah, yeah she's horrible man with that stuff but yeah i have a great relationship with my family my dad calls me up sometimes he's just like yeah i just calling you to tell you i love you i'm like dude i fucking love you too man so now that you've had a right around you're hitting your 10-year mark um like what what does it for you to today now like today's charlie you're obviously a lot different than you were you know, 10 years ago, what, what keeps you going? It keeps the wheels moving. Uh, I read a meditation yesterday that I like. I read it every year on that day that I read it the other day. And, uh, cause I've been reading the same meditations for a minute now. Um, but I, uh, I read this meditation and it basically said, you know, uh, we we're either growing or we're dying. There's nothing living. That's, there's nothing living that stays static and you know, nothing alive, stay static. And so what does it for me today is I try to always be growing. I try to always be moving forward, doing the next thing. Um, yeah. I like that. What do you, what is your recovery? So when you, when you first got into the rooms, uh, you said you had a really strong program, which means you had a sponsor, you were going to meetings, working the staff, service, service, all of these things. What does it look like now, 10 years later, because there's a lot of people that get into recovery and think, okay, I can let up. And after a year, three years, five years, or it, I mean, any amount of time, I, I'm, I met a guy when I was working in Alaska who had 30 years that he just threw out because he stopped taking care of himself. Mm. What is it that you do now? Uh, well, I guess even throughout the time, like what, what did it look like early on versus where you're at now? That is a it is such a good question, and and, um, and I'm gonna kind of I'm gonna sit here with that question for just a second. Um, so, one thing that I absolutely love, and I and I am privileged to because of the life that I've led, I am very privileged to be able to have uh, thoroughly seen all of these different stages and all types of people in those stages, and so. We have these stages of recovery, right? And and it's never like um, it's never like you know for the first six months I'm going to be doing this, I'm going to be thinking this, and then the next six months I'm going to be doing this and thinking this. It's not everybody's individualized, right? Everybody's gonna everybody's gonna reach these milestones at different. Not everybody, but people are going to reach these milestones at different times in their life, right? In their recovery, in their program of recovery. But nonetheless, there are these stages, you know. And and so, this is how it. Um, this is how I've seen it work for people that are just very active in recovery. 
And we have the initial stages where it's really important to build a foundation in recovery. Whatever that looks like for us, we have to figure out, um, we have to take, I have to take, I had to take all of these actions and these behaviors and these habits that I developed over years and years and years of drug use and alcohol use, um, I had to create new habits and new behaviors, and I had to figure out what those look like to me, right? And I had to figure out what they look like working a program of recovery, you know? And I had to consistently implement those behaviors on a daily basis for a long period of time until that became my identity, that became who I am, is this, these new behaviors. behaviors. And so once I do that, once, once I was there, I had built this foundation of recovery, right? And um, I think it, at that moment when you were just uh, uh, so active and, and deep in recovery in your community is this time where you're like, you know, I kind of want to do a little bit more of something else. I want to, you know, live life in a different direction for a little bit more. But those are the moments where it's, it's absolutely great. Like, we don't get sober. I don't get sober to, to spend every day of my life in an AA meeting. I, I don't do it for the rest of my life. I don't do it for that. I, I get sober, and I learn how to live and be this human being that I am so that I can be all of those things I used to dream about when I was nodding out on a couch with the TV on and, you know, wanting to be that and do that. You know what I mean? That's why I got sober, you know? And so at some point I woke up and I was like, dude, I am doing good. I have a foundation in recovery, right? And I'm able to like go out and like have these adventures and, and experience this stuff sober, right? But and it's at that, those, those pivotal moments in my life and, and, and pe- other people in recovery that I see, it's, it's those pivotal moments where we have to realize that we can do that, but we have to maintain that foundation, right? And whatever that looks like for us, we have to maintain that foundation. Because when we separate from all of the coping skills that got us to the place we are, we end up entering our relapse process all over again. And once we do that, um, days start to get longer, we start to get shittier, and all the stuff starts to add up and weigh up, and then we're just we're, we're that much closer to getting high. And once we get high, um, we go right back to the cycle. So... So anyway, so we get to this point, this stage where we're like, we're like, okay, cool. Now I can go live. Now I can go do this again. And we start to kind of step back, step back from being as active as we were. But nonetheless, we still have that foundation, right? And so, but, and so then we're, 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 we're branching out, right? And we're starting to, to engage in these activities, right? But we still honor recovery with a certain amount of energy every day or every other day or however that looks, right? And so this is where it gets beautiful. This is my favorite thing about recovery right here, is that in doing that, what we do, and we don't even realize we're doing it, right? What we do is we're bringing recovery into all of those other actions, all of those other things, those adventures that we're doing. We're bringing recovery. We're bringing the message of recovery into those things with us. We don't even realize we're doing it, but we're doing it, right? And so over time, and this is where it really gets pretty, over time, we are living a program of recovery from when we wake up in the morning until when we go to sleep at night, and in every action that we engage in, every side hustle we have going on to find that 
elusive thing we call happiness in life, we are bringing recovery into that because it's so ingrained in us as, a, as the human being that we become, right? And so this is like these final stages. These are these, 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 these different stages, right? But we always have to remember that even though, even though we're, we're, we're living recovery, even though we're doing all this stuff, we still have to honor that foundation on some level and whatever that looks like to us. For me, um, sponsors, uh, sponsees, like I still go to, I still go to dinner with my sponsor once a week, you know, on Fridays. Um, he got married last weekend, so I didn't go tonight, but, um, uh, he's on his honeymoon and, um, but, you know, I still go to dinner with my sponsor on Friday nights and, and, uh, we go to meetings when I can. And, um, I, I try to sponsor people because I think that that's, that's like living the program is, um, is working with others, you know? And, uh, and, and, and of service, guys, I, I think service is, is huge. I think working steps is huge. Um, and so that's, that's what I do today. When I heard you one time speak at an AA meeting, you talked about, uh, you gave kind of a recommendation to, to tell people to come back to you if they don't do four things. Yeah, 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 the four things, yeah. four things. And, 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 and so I got I to gotta also say this at this point is that um, I – uh, I, I support however people want to get clean, you know, whatever works for people, you know, and I've been, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been on, around this for a long time and, you know, some people get it in church and that's cool. If that's how you get it. That's how you get it. That didn't work for me, but if that's how you get it. I support it. Um, but we, uh, and some people, you know, get it in refuge recovery or smart recovery or war or, uh, all these other, uh, you know, various, um, uh, modalities. Modalities. Yeah. And so we, uh, uh, but, but, but what we need to remember is that in, in all of these things, there's, there's steps, right? In all of these things, there's, 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 um, there's recommendations that you, these are the things you need to do to be, you know, part of this community and to be uh, growing in, in this community, right? Like uh, Refuge Recovery, I think, has eight, eight steps. Yeah, it's yeah. eight. Right. And, um, you know, and then there's uh, NAAA, you know, got 12 steps in there, and, and God Knows Church has a lot of steps, <laughs> right? <laughs> And so, um, and then, you know, you, and then in refuge recovery, you have like a mentor and then in, in AA and in NA, you have a sponsor and, and then in church, you have like a priest or a bishop or a, uh, elder or whatever the hell church you go to. And, and so, um, so anyway, so, uh, so, okay. So, so all that being said, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what works for me is that, you know, there's these four things, there's these four things that I, I live by and I, and I, I've been saying this for a long time and I, I challenge anybody out there that hears me say this and they say, they say, you know, I'm going to do these every day and I'm going to do them every day. And, and, uh, and if they don't work, I want you to give me a call and, um, you can probably figure out through Instagram, through Mike, how to get my number <laughs> and say, look, I got a bone to be with Charlie. He told me to call him and tell him to fuck off if uh, this didn't work. Um, and so I, I stand by this and nobody's called me and told me that yet. But, um, if you do the four things consistently, preferably daily, I swear to God, you'll stay sober. And that is, um, number one, you need to go to meetings, right? So if that's church, you need to go to church, right? If that's refuge, you need to go to refuge. If that's meetings, you need to go to meetings, right? Um, so that's number one is go to meetings. And uh, number two is to get a sponsor. And guys and girls, I'm going to tell you right now, when you get a sponsor, you don't just get a sponsor in name because that's not that's not having a sponsor, 
right? When you get a sponsor, you develop a relationship with that sponsor, right? That's having a sponsor, right? So you get a sponsor and you utilize that sponsor. So that's the number two thing. And then the number three thing is you work steps, right? Whatever it is, whatever program you're part of, you do what they're telling you to do. Yeah, right? Because that's where the growth occurs, right? My first sponsor, Henry DeBone, used to always say, he'd say, you know what? It's absolutely ridiculous how many people in this room are in a 12-step program and don't work steps. And, um, and so anyway, so, so you work steps. So that's number three. And then number four, you be of service to human beings. It drives me crazy when people in the room say, um, go help another al- alcoholic or addict. It drives me crazy because don't just go help an alcoholic or addict. Go help everybody, you know. Go be of service to human beings. Um, and so, so those are the four things. Just to repeat real quick is you go to meetings, number one. You get a sponsor and utilize the sponsor, number two. You work steps, number three. And then you be of service to humanity, number four. And if you're doing these four things consistently and daily, I swear to God you'll stay sober. For starters, you won't really have time to get high. You know, but more importantly, you'll get sober, you'll stay sober, and you will become that person that these programs all are designed for you to be. Like, you will grow into that human being that you always said, I want to be that person. I want to be that person. And I think that is a phenomenal spot to end on because we got a couple minutes left. Hey, guys, thank you all so much for listening to me. Thanks for asking me to be here, and um, I'm just honored and privileged to Dude, share this. Dude, it's our pleasure, man. Yeah. This is really good. Um, so once again, Charlie, we really thank you, man, for coming on. And uh, also give us some feedback, Instagram, see how we sound. We keep changing our mic setup, so hopefully that we're, we're progressing because earlier on they were giving us some, I guess, poor feedback. Yeah, we've, 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 we're, we're, we're progressing. We're stepping up. We're going up. So, uh, it's a growth process. Yeah, it is. So, <laughs> no, I really, I really appreciate Progress, it. Not perfection. No, I really appreciate you coming on. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's awesome to hear kind of a different, uh, everyone's story. It's great to, it's motivating and, mm. uh, you've helped me out quite a bit in my life and I really appreciate you coming on. So, yeah, thanks. You're always a brother to me. Always. <laughs> Okay, right on, guys. Well, thanks for listening. Till next time. See ya. Later. Bye.